Good morning. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 9. Last time, we talked about this this morning too, but last time, if you remember, we talked about Saul's conversion. The beginning of Acts chapter 9. We first learned about him, if you remember, in Acts chapter 8. He was one of the first persecutors of the bride of Christ. He was there when Stephen was killed after preaching a powerful message. He approved of those who stoned him. He tried to destroy the church. We were told that he entered house after house and dragging off believers and committed them to prison. Their crime? What's their crime? You see, this happens again and again is people oppose the gospel messengers and the messengers give them powerful evidence, bold proclamation of the truth, and they cannot resist them and they resort to violence. It happens again and again in the book of Acts and in the world. Paul tried to destroy the church. He was at work actively against the gospel. When it started to advance in other places, he went to those places to grab them and drag them off to prison. And if you remember, in Acts 8, he had asked for permission, excuse me, 9, for permission to go round up the Christians who were in Damascus, in Syria. Listen, this, the gospel has moved fast, hasn't it? This is some 135 miles from Jerusalem. We were told six days walk. And I was thinking, I was doing the math thinking, those guys are fast walkers. 20 miles a day? Man. But the gospel has moved fast. Paul is not content to just round up the ones in his neck of the woods. He said, I've heard there's others all around. Give me permission. I'll go get them. And we discussed, if you remember, he wouldn't have been alone. Right? How many Christians is he going to find in Damascus? It seemed that Paul was very successful. Entering house after house. You know, being very thorough to find them. We're not told how many people are with him, but he's definitely not alone. Probably a number of people, because he would need help. If they found two dozen Christians in Damascus, one person is not going to be able to bring them back to Jerusalem. And we were told that when Saul's getting close to his intended target, a light from heaven shone around him, even on him. And we discussed this, that we are told in the scriptures later that this event happened at noonday, the brightest part of the day. And a light shines around him. How bright was this light? Brighter than the sun at noonday? Right? As far as humanly speaking, we know of no brighter light than the bright light of the midday sun. It's as bright as it'll get. In fact, you can't look at it. It'll burn your eyes out if you look at it. He is surrounded by a bright light, brighter than the sun. It's the light of Jesus. 
And Saul hears the voice of God. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul asks a logical question. Who are you, Lord? And we are told that God changes his mind. No longer is he an active opponent to the gospel. And it's not just that Paul has been neutralized. He, yes, he's no longer a threat to the church, that's true. But he's not neutralized, is he? He's trained for war. He flips sides by the grace of God working in him. No longer is Paul trying to kill the church. He's actually one of its chief constructors, builders, using Jesus as the foundation and going from place to place to bring people to Christ. We, we discussed earlier his ordeal that when this light was so bright he couldn't see for a few days, God told him to go to a certain place. In the meantime, God is speaking to another one of his people. These all being divine appointments. Ananias helps Saul regain his sight. Remember Ananias' reluctancy at first? Are you sure, Lord? This guy is not playing around. We all have heard about him. And God tells him, don't worry, he's no threat. He's going to suffer for my name's sake. You won't suffer by him. I'm going to use him. And we see quickly, he preaches to Gentiles and kings. This man who initially tried to destroy the church. In Ananias, verse 17 of chapter 9, he obeys the Lord, Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not only does Paul have testimony that he heard Jesus and spoke with him, not only... Were there others there who heard this? If you look at verse 7 of chapter 9, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Those others that had gone with him to help bring back the prisoners, they heard the voice also. And listen, and Ananias testifies too, the voice you heard was Jesus. And he sent me. How do I even know you're here right now, brother? Because he sent me here. He told me. He talked to you. And he sent me to come help you. That you might receive your sight back and be filled with the Holy Spirit. In verse 18, immediately something like scales fell from his eyes. And he rose and was baptized. And then we finished up that section, verse 19 through 22. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. Those believers that he had gone there to arrest 
Now he's fellowshipping with them for some days. And he immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, quote, He is the Son of God. Forget what I was doing before. I was wrong. He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem? those who called upon this name. And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? They can't believe it. He's not just neutralized. He is a tool in God's hand. He immediately starts preaching. Now think about this. He, he would need to grow in his faith, wouldn't he? Certainly he would need to grow. But listen, this is not like me teaching someone about the gospel. Jesus told him about the gospel directly. We're not told this, but I assume they had more conversations. If what he says in Galatians is true, that I received my gospel through divine revelation, well, we're not told what Jesus told him to teach. What we're told is, Jesus told him, stop persecuting me. You're my child now. Right? There has to be other discussions that we don't know. And we are told, 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Father, thank you for what we've studied already. And we pray that you'd help us as we read today's text. We pray that it would bless us and that it would... Um, Father, we want to know the truth. We pray that by reading it, we would know the truth. That we would be strengthened more and more. And Father, we pray that you would help us, that we wouldn't be forgetful hearers, but we would be effectual doers. Please, Lord, help me as I preach. Protect me from error. And bless your people. We're hungry, Lord. We pray you'd feed us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand while we read the Word of God. We'll read verses 23 through the end of the chapter. Verse 23, Acts chapter 9, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. 
So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated meaning Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please, come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Amen. You may be seated. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So what we see is that Saul is preaching in Damascus. He's increasing in strength. Verse 20, preaching in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And confounded, verse 22, confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Not only was he bold in preaching it, he was proving it. Meaning, they have no answer for his answer. Certainly, he's using the Old Testament scriptures and showing them these texts are about Jesus. He is the Son of God. He's confounding them. Verse 23, having no answer, having nothing to do, looking foolish in public, being humiliated, the Jews plot to kill him. There's nothing left. We just have to kill him. We've tried to reason with him. We can't win. Let's just kill him. They did the same to the prophets of the Lord in the past. They did the same to Jesus. They do the same to his apostles. Verse 24, their plot became known to Saul. This is interesting. How 
does it become known? We don't know. It became known. Have you heard this phrase? A little birdie told him. A little birdie told him. How did he know? He knew because God providentially, it was not the time of Saul to be killed. Right? Saul has a lot of work left to do. And he's not supposed to die in Damascus. The plot becomes known to Saul and they're watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. So they're thinking either he's going to leave or he's going to come back and we'll catch him at the gate. He's, there's only one way he's going to come in and out. And when we see him, we'll capture him and we'll get rid of him. We will kill him. Verse 25, his disciples though. What disciples? The disciples that he has made since being converted and preaching boldly. Since coming from Jerusalem to capture the Christians, he is now a minister of reconciliation. He is preaching. The Damascan people are believing. They're disciples of Jesus. Their teacher, Saul. They take him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So they go at night and they don't use the gate. They're waiting for him there. They, they go to a different place in order for him to escape. But listen, this is very important. Saul is not a coward. He's not a coward. We will see he suffers many things after being told, if you don't stop, we will beat you. And he doesn't stop. And they beat him and he still doesn't stop. He's not a coward. Sometimes, listen, sometimes it's God's will for his people to escape persecution. There's not always and only one path. Just let them kill you. There's not. Many times the Jews sought to destroy Jesus, we are told, and he escaped through their midst. We're like, how is it possible? There's a mob of people. How could he get away? Because he's God. It wasn't the time for him to be violently assaulted by them. It wasn't the time for them to throw him off a cliff. And in this case, it's not the time for Saul to be murdered. And definitely it would be as a martyr, wouldn't it? He would be murdered for his faith. He has many other places to visit. Listen, Saul has letters to write. Lots of letters to write. So he escapes, having preached the gospel, finding disciples that the Lord had opened their hearts and eyes to receive the message. His disciples help him to escape. Verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, and they did not believe he was a disciple. I mean, don't they have a right to be skeptical? 
Perhaps even some of them had been previously arrested or previously hunted by him. And Barnabas, we see, this son of encouragement, he is a blessing to Saul, isn't he? He's like, no, listen, it's legit. He really is a believer. He preached boldly. I'm a witness. I know. He took him and brought him to the, verse 27, brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. You know, this is the time that we just read about in, in Galatians. When Paul's talking about his credentials and whether or not he has the authentic gospel message or if he's been influenced by somebody else, we read that passage in Galatians. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. You have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Jerusalem beyond many of my own age among my people. So zealous was I, extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. Listen, certainly the Pharisees would have loved him, wouldn't they have? He's a rising star. Not only is he against these Christians, he's taken action against them. Paul in that Galatians 1 passage, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas and remained with him 15 days. This seems to be, verse 26 of Acts 9, seems to be that meeting. This is three years later. After he's gone to Arabia, after he's returned to Damascus, after the people in Damascus are plotting to kill him and he escapes, he goes to Jerusalem. But the Christians, they're afraid of him. And after Barnabas' help, he finds a good ministry there. Verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of of the Lord. Verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. So the same scenario again, he talks with the Hellenists, these Greek-speaking Jews. He debates with them, shows them the scriptures, Back and forth. They can't win. What are we going to do? We have to do something. Everyone knows this guy used to be a persecutor of the church. Now he switched. That will encourage other people to switch sides. We have to kill him. Words won't work. We just have to use violence. 
Verse 30, when the brothers learn this, again, providential help, they discover the plot before it happens. It's not Saul's time to be murdered. They brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus, which is his hometown, right? Saul of Tarsus. Verse 31, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and, uh, Galilee and Samaria had peace and being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. Now listen, we talk sometimes about the church universal and the church local, right? This is the church local. But Jesus is not a polygamist. He has one bride, the church, which exists from all the time of the Gospels until now in every place that there's ever been a Christian. The church. And I think that's what the, our brother Luke is telling us here. The church throughout the area was at peace. Which one? All of it. I mean, how many gatherings were there throughout this area? This is not a small area. Throughout all um, Galilee, Galilee and Samaria, there are likely hundreds of small gatherings. If we're told that 3,000 people are added in one day, listen, there's no mega church in Jerusalem. What, how are they meeting? A bunch of small groups in people's houses. This is not, don't try to put modern day thinking on this. You know, how big is too big for a church? We don't have that problem. But how big is too big? I mean, if the elders don't know the names of the people who go to their fellowship, it's too big. If you have 2,000 people in your fellowship, how many elders? 10? 20? But you'll see they don't. There's three. That, that's, not, that's not acceptable. I'm not against big churches. God bless them. I hope the gospel thrives. But don't put lay leaders in the place of elders. And say, well, how many elders do you have? 20? No, we have three. But we have small group studies of 50s and 100s. I say, oh, okay, who are leading those studies? Not elders. By the way, you're all priests and priestesses. You can lead a Bible study, but my point is they're offloading the work and the office that's supposed to be for elders and giving it to other people to make up for the fact that it's way too big and the elders have no idea who the people are. That is not what's happening in the text here. Hundreds of small churches... Hundreds, likely. Walking in the fear of the Lord in obedience to the Lord. This isn't fear of judgment. They're walking in the fear of the Lord. They are, quote, God-fearers. Meaning, they believe in Him. They want to obey Him. They love Him. They want to glorify His name. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church is growing and multiplying. 
Oh, that that would happen in our land, in our day. Our church local? Yes. Brother, your church in Wisconsin too? Well, not our church or your church. The Lord's church here and there and everywhere. We would fear the Lord and we would be comforted by the Holy Spirit and we would multiply. Please help us, Lord. Well, that's kind of the end of Saul for a while in the book of Acts. We move now to Peter. So if you think about it, we have, we have had Stephen's messages until he's killed. Then Philip is in Samaria and in various places. And then it shifts to Saul's early ministry. And now we're back to Peter. Verse 32, as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. So he's ministering outside of Jerusalem. He's traveling towards the coast. He meets a paralyzed man there. Aeneas, eight years bedridden. We've talked about the miracles of God in the past. If somebody gets into a car accident and they are paralyzed, but through rigorous physical therapy over a period of three years, they are finally able to walk again. Did God help them? Definitely. Our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. But that's not a miracle. It happened as a result of exercise and physical therapy and procedures and crutches and casts and all sorts of blood transfusions and IVs and all that in order for people to recover. Somebody who's been bedridden, who's paralyzed for eight years, their legs and their bodies will be in a terribly weakened state. Peter meets this man in verse 34. He says to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And we do not read immediately. They took him away to a rehabilitation clinic where he spent the next five years and recovered recovered his ability to walk. That is not what happens. Immediately he is healed. A miracle. This does not happen except by the hand of Jesus and his disciples. We've read about so many of these. I don't want y'all to miss the miraculous nature of these things. Any one of them by themselves, when it happens, the people in the area believe in Jesus. When they see what cannot happen, happen because of the power of God to heal, they say, I want to follow him. The power of God is upon Jesus and the Holy Spirit that's in his disciples. We don't don't lose sight of the wonder when you see the miracles of God in the scriptures. It's speaking. The signs are speaking, aren't they? 
You remember the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him? And they were quizzing him later and saying, but where does this man come from? And the blind man says, isn't it completely obvious he's from God? Nobody can heal people who are born blind. It's not a thing. It never happens ever. Oh, you were born blind. Sorry, the procedure I was going to use can't work on those who are born blind. And isn't it, they keep quizzing him again and again, and he's like, do you guys want to be his disciples too? Is that how come you want to know so much about it? Of course he's from God. It's obvious. And Peter, in the name of Jesus Christ, he heals him. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. Verse 35, And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. So Sharon is more like a, not a specific city, but an area. It's kind of like Parker's in Conn County. The, the residents of that city, yes, but those just in the area, the larger area, they hear about this and they believe. They Listen, the sign does what it's supposed to do. This is why Jesus was so harsh to the hypocrites. He said, if Sodom and Gomorrah had seen the things that you've seen, they would have repented, certainly. There's no doubt what God's doing, but you guys are so hard of hearing, it'll be more tolerable for them than it will be for you. Verse 36, we see Peter goes down further toward the coast. There is a town, Joppa. And he meets, well, he, there is a disciple there named Tabitha. And she is full of good works and acts of charity. Oh, that we would be described as people who are full of good works and charity. Boy, you know that guy over at First Baptist Parker? You know that woman? She is full of good works and charity. She, verse 37, she became ill. How ill? Very ill. She died. Very ill. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. You know, they're getting ready for, to bury her. She's dead. Well, this is interesting. Since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples hearing that Peter was there, so they've heard from a ways away about the fame of what God's doing through Peter. They know that he's in a town that's not that close. Close, but not that close. They didn't read the newspaper and read it on the internet. Word of mouth had traveled to them that Peter was not too far away. He maybe could come. Verse 38, they sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. Now, we're not told what they expected him to do. Certainly, they didn't think he was going to rise, raise her from the dead. 
I don't know if they wanted him to preach and comfort and use that as an opportunity. Don't know. Verse 39, Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside weeping. As, as they should be doing. This was a woman of faith. She became very ill and died. Verse 40, Peter puts them all outside. He knelt down and prayed. This is not Peter's power. Right? Peter, sometimes because they see God's power going through them, they want to worship the apostles. Right? And the apostles say, Stand up! No! We're men too! God's using us, but it's not our power. It's, we're, we're normal people. God's using us. He tells her to arise, and she does. The woman who was full of faith full of good works and acts of charity, who has been dead, her body... Listen, she wasn't very, very weak and unconscious or in a coma and had come out of the coma. No, she was dead. They've already prepared her body. Rigor mortis has already started setting into her body. They know she's dead. People who deal with bodies know. There's no warmth. The body is stiffening. And we can talk about this another time, but when you think about the destruction of the body at death, it, it's repulsive. It's awful. Jesus says, not only am I going to forgive your sins, but your body, I won't leave it in that state. I'm going to bring it back. Not just how it was either. A glorified body. He heals her from death. Verse 42, it became known. Well, 41, he gave her his hand and raised her up and calling the saints and widows, he presented her to them alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This is what's happening in Acts. The gospel is moving out either by bold proclamation and the Holy Spirit confounding those who tried to debate with the apostles of the Lord or by miraculous signs. Many are coming to know the Lord. The gospel is advancing even in the face of very tough opposition, right? Plots, schemes to kill the leaders of the movement. They've, they thought, we'll kill off Jesus and these, they'll be like sheep without a shepherd and they will scatter. But in fulfillment of prophecy, as Jesus said, you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Not only will I be with you, in the one place that I am, but I'll be with you in all places at all time. You'll be clothed with the Holy Spirit. And so after killing Jesus and realizing it, doesn't, it didn't work, 
They're not falling back. They're pressing forward. Well, let's find the leaders of that and kill them. But it doesn't work. Because of the power of God. Because of the new birth. News spreads. Many more believe in the name of the Lord. And that happens in our day in different ways. When we hear about news from a far country, and we hear how people are preaching, and souls are being saved, and in a place where idolatry reigns, they're having a church conference. And dozens and hundreds of Christians from around the area are joining together. While chants of monks are in the background, they are not falling back, but pressing forward. Doesn't it make you want to press forward? We can do it. In fact, we've been empowered to do it by the Holy Spirit of God. Give testimony. You have a story to tell too. Not all of our stories are the same. And that's the way God intends. Use your story. The truth. Eyewitness account. I was not a believer, but God changed me. He does. If you people who knew me as a young man, if they if you told them now or when they hear about it, it's like a joke. You know, Bill Hale's a preacher now? What? Impossible. Would they think that about you too? If you're brought up in a Christian home, God bless you. Thanks be to the name of the Lord. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing the truth of the Scriptures to our hearing. Thank You for opening our understanding that we wouldn't oppose the Gospel anymore, but we would embrace the Gospel. Lord, that we wouldn't run from You, but we would run to You. That we would not turn away from You, but turn toward You. Have mercy on us. We confess, Lord, that we are compromised. Our flesh is against the Spirit that's in us. Have mercy on us, Lord. We've been arrogant. We've coveted. Father, we've put things before You. We've been angry, Father. We've been impatient. We've been cruel. Have mercy on us, Father. Our desire is to not engage in the the sins of the flesh, but our desire, Father, is to stir up the fruit of the Spirit in us. We wouldn't be angry, but we'd be at peace. We wouldn't hate, Lord, but we would love We pray that you'd be with our fellowship as we have lunch together and we ask that you'd help us to be um, 
more and more the the bride adorned for her husband. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.